If you choose the quick and easy path as vegetate, you will become an agent of evil. Patience. And sacrifice Hanalea? If you are what they fight for? Yes. If you choose to face Veda, you will do it alone. I cannot interfere. I understand. R2, fire up the converters. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 29. Is it 29? I think it's 29 of the world famous Ted Towards Worldly Podcasts. I'm Chewbacca. I'm Princess Leia, why not? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And what's new in the world of... Hang on, that's how we do news for the world of news, isn't it? FU, Uh, maybe. Do we start with FU? So, yeah, we've got got a... a precise, honed, yeah. <laughs> down to the minute, perfected agenda, which we're going to stick to, and this is going to be yeah, the one, yeah, the best, yeah, most. Yeah. Read, li- listeners will know. Listeners will know that we've become more professional over time, and this is going to be the most professional of the podcasts yet, by far. So, what are we starting <laughs> with? Fu. 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 So, br- so briefly, some some follow up from from last time. Okay, first of all, I want to apologise to everyone for referring to the Twilight movies as being horrible <laughs> due to. <laughs> female romantic obsession I should have just said romantic obsession because it's irrelevant that it's female obsession just romantic obsession of any kind is annoying and those films are god um, the discussion about the Squamazoic um, the, the, just briefly uh, Frank Landis was asking what's going on with the Hawaiian Islands and I think my discussion was all over the place because sometimes I seem to refer to the Galapagos Islands more than the <laughs> Hawaiian Islands but I meant I had the Hawaiian Islands in mind you know the centre of the Pacific and what he was getting at was was um, you know, is there a terrestrial fauna on in on the Hawaiian Islands in the Squamazoic? Because uh, you know that animals have had to cross the Pacific to get there, and uh, and I've been thinking about it a bit. You know, I'm not going to pretend that the whole of the Squamazoic world is fully fleshed out, but you know what? Yes, there is. What the hell? There is an endemic terrestrial <laughs> fauna. Because what's happened is that so the Squamazoic seas are full of sea snakes, and what's happened is some of the sea snakes. They've become land snakes again. So Hawaii is full of terrestrial snakes. It's uh, it's full of them, and there's like you know little ones, big ones, and they and they all eat other snakes. They're all predators of other snakes. So it's rampant cannibalism on an industrial scale. And in our discussion about, I forget who asked the question. Uh, it could have been Aaron Wells, one of our regular listeners. But um, what's the deal with the intelligent species in the Squamazoic? And then you and I had this debate as to. Is it possible you could have like two intelligent societies living side by side? And the good reasons for thinking, no, you probably couldn't. But we were trying to come up with a mechanism as to say, could you? Could you have this this happen? And someone, I'm sorry, I forget who, someone said, well, what about the idea of mimicry? You got like one uh, species mimics another one and thereby like inhabits the fringes of its culture or society or whatever. So that's uh, that's an idea. That's a funny um, idea, but there are problems with that. But yes. Yeah, the, yeah, it's we could discuss this at length, but we're not going to because we're out of time, right? We're just going to whip through That's these. Right. It's still an FU. Um, Richard Nicklin recommends that I should mention Permian bears within the context of the pan-biogeography thread, which again, when we, when did we do the last episode? It was month. It was weeks ago, wasn't it? So I don't know if people even remember. Yeah, it was but a, this yeah, nearly a month ago. Well, I'm sure I'm sure it's fresh in everybody's mind. Mm. But the the pan-biogeography thread, which emerged. Um, in the comment section of May's article on Paleonath at Tetsu, basically these two researchers suggesting, arguing that um, uh, 
the disjunct distribution is best explained by an ancient continuous distribution, which means you have Mesozoic and stuff like that. <laughs> what does it mean for bears? <laughs> uh, asks Richard. Well, Permian bears. <laughs> there are bears in the Permian. <laughs> That's become like a, a Tetsu meme. Uh, tapirs. Uh, Henry Pilstrom asks, what does it mean for tapirs, given that there are tapirs in South America and Asia? Well, clearly there must have been tapirs in the, in the Cretaceous and maybe earlier. <laughs> um, now, I should say the two-minute rule is in effect as it is in every episode. Take a drink. <laughs> and the patented Mike Kesey drinking game. Guess what? What? It's not the patented Mike Kesey drinking game. It's the patented Richard Nicklin drinking game. Mike Kesey, pretender to the throne, merely codified it. So it's Richard Nicklin's... <laughs> <laughs> and so thank you Richard for reminding I did tell him to remind me all this stuff so I'm pre- uh, thanks Richard um, so yeah that's yeah in the discussion about theropod forelimbs Richard also reminds me that we should have spoken about kangaroos and yes it's true but again we're not going to now yes we should have yeah I kind of think but kangaroos I don't know no, don't s- excuse it we were just morons we forgot about kangaroos okay alright yeah more. <laughs> now have you heard this is going to now should we do? Should we talk about Tetsuocon first, or should we morph into more newsy stuff? What do you reckon? Um, let's do Tetsuocon. All right, go, take it away, John. No, you take it away. Well, um, within recent, you've got a better memory than me. I've forgotten the whole thing already. Okay. Uh, some days ago, July, what was it? The thirteenth, I think. Yep. We held the world's first ever Tetrapod Zoology Convention, Tetsuocon, at the London Wetland Centre in uh, uh, West London, and um, it was f- fantastic. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I think we had a brilliant spread of talks and presentations, and all the talks were really good. We've made a point of like asking for feedback from all the attendees, and without any exaggeration, I can tell you that every single Obviously, you know, you got you, if you got like five or more talks, they're not all going to be equally strong. But every single there, there were positive things said about every single one of them. It was it was all good. And in the end, we had somewhere around about fifty-five people um, turn up, which was we were hoping for like a couple more. We could have had like another twenty on top of that. But um, but that number looked dead right for the venue. Like, I did, I, yes. I, yeah. It, the 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 theatre was, you know, the right spread of people to fill up the space, and uh, you know, huge thanks to everyone who attended. Really appreciate the fact, you know, it's a, obviously a huge gamble. You just hope that people are going to come to an event like this, and and they did, and they've all said really good things about it. There are at least four write-ups um, of it. There's one. There's one at Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs by Mark Vincent and, and Nati Himapan. There's one at Mark Witten's blog. There's one by Paleo Sam, which is uh, we'll have to put this in the show notes or something because I can't remember the name of the, the blog site. But um, and there's one or two others. There's also one at uh, Tetrapod Zoology, of course. I've written up my thoughts about it. And a spread of talks from we had stuff on dinosaurs, pterosaurs, uh, some stuff about like historical primatology and cryptozoology, some stuff about speculative zoology, uh, mermaids, um, amphibian conservation. Uh, I, I think I think it was a good representative spread of stuff that's 
fits within the remit of the Tetsuverse. And the Paleo Art Workshop worked despite your fears. And I'm, I know you weren't happy with what happened technic-wise, right? But well, it was it it was a minor technical failure. Um, yeah, but it, it it didn't fail completely, right? <laughs> didn't fail completely, right? <laughs> what what did, what didn't work? So, um, one of the cameras didn't work. So, I should explain what this is in case podcast listeners don't know. We had three people at the front: um, Bob Nichols, Mark Whitten, and myself drawing, and that was being projected onto the screen via cameras, um, just phones. I was using phones to um, relay the video to the computer, which was projecting it to the screen. One of the phones was just refusing to connect to the computer, so we were missing one video, which, yeah, was mine. Well, as someone who, who was, you know, I was an audience member in that session, I, I, wouldn't, I didn't know that. I didn't you know, just didn't register, so it it worked and it worked really well. Mm. So, so what what John, Bob, and and Mark did is they is as they were drawing stuff because what we did is John devised this um, exercise where people had a disarticulated skeleton and they had to like try and well interpret it however they liked. And it was a, it was a famous paleontological specimen. I think most people sort of re- well a lot of dinosauri people knew what it was straight away, um, but you know. We had a show of hands afterwards, and it was only about a third of people knew what it was. Mm. Um, because, I guess, the Tetsu world is large, you know. Um, like I would say that, uh, certainly on my side, I came from the paleo side, so I get the impression that it, it's it's more paleo-focused than it is. And it's in many ways, it's not. It's very much, you know, a lot of modern zoology. Of course, there's paleontology to back it up in most people's heads, but... Yeah, no, down to uh, knowing uh, actual specimens of dinosaurs. I think a lot of people just don't know that sort of stuff, mm. right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. But it was a brilliant exercise. It went, it went really well, and uh, I, th- I think it was, it was what we hoped for in terms of interactivity and also funness. And yes, the uh, yeah, and the quiz. I thought that we did, we had a quiz at the end, thirty questions, which it was mostly meant to be really difficult, and and it was kind of meant to be a bit silly and fun, and. Um, yeah, I did the quiz when you sent me the quiz. Yeah, um, and you sent me the answers, <laughs> and I did the quiz after I read the answers. Do you want to know how much I got? Yeah, four. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd already looked at the answers. I already looked at the how, answers. How is that even possible? <laughs> it was really hard. Well, I would say the mode score for you in that quiz was about four, wasn't it? There were very few people that got over over half, yeah. Oh, come on. The highest score was 17. No, no. The highest was 23. Out of, how many? Out of 40, was it? 30. 30. The highest was 23, which was just ridiculous. And the second highest was 17. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, everyone but... else is below below half. Yeah, there were like... So out of our 50-odd 50, 50 people, 50, 53 people, whatever, there were like four that got over half. Yeah. But it, but it wasn't meant to be easy. It was meant to be <laughs> stupid enough. But it was also everything in there was in some way, you know, relevant to stuff that's been on Tezu. In fact, some of it was like things, the quotations and semi-quotation, paraphrase things from recent articles. So, but so the I've forgotten the name of the winner. Oh dear, um, the guy who had the cassowary t-shirt on. But um, um, yeah, he got a pig skull as a prize. 
which is uh, kindly donated by Mike Sauropod Mike Taylor, um, which was just fantastic. And and yeah, the whole day was really good. Now the venue was uh, and the venue was fine. You know, we we got to go around afterwards and look at um, waterfowl, uh, which which is good because everyone likes ducks, don't they? Um, but it was pricey. We won't lie; it was extremely pricey. So pricey that <laughs> uh, yeah, we we covered our costs, but we haven't come out of this with <laughs> yeah uh, yeah. Okay, so I still haven't done the books, but it looks like yeah, we've sort of made back a few hours of our time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good then. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's sort of uh, uppermost in my mind for doing it again. I think we need to find a way of making it worth our time. And it's not because we're greedy. It's because, you know, Darren and I are trying, well, we to make our, to... trying to make our living at this sort of thing, yeah, right? Yeah, so scratching need, a living. Yeah, we need to, we need to make some money on this. Um, so next time I think it will be done slightly differently. Unless we can be absolutely sure that we're going to get a much larger audience. Um, yeah, things will be done a bit differently. I'm not really sure how yet. Yeah, and it's difficult to, to appreciate how expensive running a thing like this is until you actually do it. Like, for example, at a venue, a proper venue, you've got to have tea and coffee. And yeah. I've told this to everyone, but you know, I'm not ashamed. We shouldn't be ashamed to let people know this. Do you know that for a... Do you know, listeners, that for a day of tea and coffee, you pay £500. That's just tea and coffee, right? And then you've got the venue hire on top of it, which, te- which I'll tell you is considerably more than £500. Well, we can just you- say what it is. It was £900. Exactly. So, so we've already got to make £1,500-ish just, just to break even in the first Just for months. the venue. And then there's That's other just things, like the conference packs, and there was a bunch of other stuff. So... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really close. It was really close. Um Yeah, that's the that's the problem though, isn't it? And, and, yeah. and you know, in some ways you feel like forty pounds for a day, that sounds kind of expensive. But um yeah, I can see why things are not that cheap now. <laughs> well a lot you know, you go to d- discussions that are associated with conferences like SVPCA, for example, and SVP and other things, and they talk about the problem that they have now with finding venues that are affordable because cause places like, you know, universities and county council halls and ledger centers and all that stuff, they're now, they all make a lot of money. Cinemas they all, and schools, they make a lot of money by running corporate events, a lot of money. So they ask for a lot of money for anyone, that, which, which puts little people out of the game. You know, you've got to be like a big corporate, you've got to be a big company to... Tetsu isn't a big company, but, you know, we're... Okay, it was ke- one day, Darren. One, one day. day. One day. Well, we're still in our thirties, so <laughs> or I am anyway. I don't know about you. Um, <laughs> Kel- it was Kelvin Britton who who won the Tetsu quiz with a spectacular twenty-three out of thirty, which is just ridiculous. Amazing. <laughs> um, people want to know what the qui- what the the questions was. People have asked me. I haven't. I I haven't had time to do anything about it yet. I'm not sure if I will actually, but um, I don't know. We're unlikely to ever have time in the podcast to go through it, are we? But, no. but they were they were questions like, "What was the ten thousandth comment on Tetrapod Zoology <laughs> version 3? Although was we it? could do it as an extra. Maybe maybe we will. Maybe we will. But um, yeah. So, but I have heard you know tell of people running conferences or conventions and coming out of it penniless and being com- you know completely ruined financially by this and. 
at least we <laughs> at least it wasn't that bad for us. At least we did cut cut even. So um, yeah, well, so, yes, yeah. it was. Yeah, exactly. We made a little bit of money, which is yeah. all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, are we going to do more? More Tetsucons. Uh I would say yes if we can find a way of uh getting that cost down a bit or being or finding a way of knowing for certain that we can get to a number of people that makes it more profitable. The problem is that um the sort of numbers we're looking at, sort of um fifty to eighty, is a really awkward number of people to have. There's not a lot of venues and the venues that are around are expensive. Um, for the number of per person is what I mean. Mm. So if we could get up to many more than that, then we'd start to make um, make it back in a volume. But but that's the problem, isn't it? Because that number that you've anywhere between I would say thirty-ish and eighty-ish is the sort of general ballpark number for events of this kind. You know, go, yeah. I go to a lot of conventions and conferences and stuff, and they're all about that. Unless you go to the next step up, is things like you know big big meetings of international biologists and paleontologists where you're into the couple of thousands but everything else is like you know between 50 and 100 yeah and so i agree which is why it's surprising there aren't more venues around like that but there you go um we have to we have to move on because we're spending too like too long on tetsucon i told you not to john i told you not to and now we've got to do news from the world of news okay and this got to keep this real brief as well because um just a couple of things uh, now we we can't not mention Calendodromius zabacarlicus, mm. which which is this fuzzy bipedal neoornithischian dinosaur from Siberia, described by Pascal Godefroy and colleagues in uh, Science. So we already know, thanks to a Cetacosaurus specimen and thanks to Tianyulong, a heterodontosaurid from China, we've known for a while that ornithischian dinosaurs, some of them have. Weird filamentous integumentary structures of some form, which people like to, t- to call proto feathers, or like to like to say that they're feathers. Uh, but this one, Calendodromius, it's got it's got small rounded scales on its like parts of its feet. Then it's got hexagonal bigger scales on uh, like its sh- uh, shins. I think it's got monofilamentous structures across like much of its part of its head and and um limbs and body then it's got like subrectangular plate-like scoot-like structures arranged along the dorsal surface of the tail so the tail isn't covered in fuzz then it's got two other weird novel structures it's got these things that they kind of superficially resemble a, a hand in that there's a, a broad base plate region, kind of like the palm of your hand, and then emerging from the posterior border of the base plate are a series of parallel, sub-parallel fibres. Then also, on part of the the proximal part, that's the upper part of the shins, there are long ribbon-like structures. So there are at least three filamentary structures on this animal's body, as well as scales on other parts, and as well as these rectangular scoots on the tail. That's so pretty cool, isn't it? It's pretty awesome. So, a little fuzzy ornithischian. And we've mentioned fuzziness in dinosaurs a couple of times. And predictably, you know, the, the thing people tend to say is, well, okay, we've got loads of fuzzy theropods. Now we've got a couple of fuzzy ornithischians. We know pterosaurs are fuzzy. So, was the common ancestor for pterosaurs and dinosaurs filamentous? And 
like I said, people do tend to refer to these filamentous structures as, as feathers or proto feathers. And I'm I'm not really mm, I don't know, not 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 kind of sure if I'm happy with that or not. Because because I think that feathers may be part of the whole, you know, maybe feathers are part of the whole spectrum. Certainly they are in theropods, but I'm not sure whether we should call the filamentous integumentary structures feathers or proto-feathers because, you know, they might be nothing to do with feathers at all. It's just like filamentous integument yeah. is... And, I, and also, even if they are homolog- homologous, um, I think that there's a sort of a weird thing with... You know, this stuff on ornithischians... Um, it had clearly evolved in its own sort of direction from, if it, if it is homologous with other things, from simpler sort of single strand things or something like this. You know, I just don't know. I don't know whether I like calling them proto feathers, like they're on the way to feathers. Yeah, like they're antecedent to, to true feathers. I'm, yeah. I kind of because there's there's the, there is of course the possibility that they are independently derived and they aren't. They don't stem from a common ancestor, but. We've spoken about this before on the on the podcast. I think uh, I think we both prefer the idea they probably are. It pro- I think it probably is going to pan out that you know fuzz of some sort is ancestral for ornithodirans, so it's inherited by pterosaurs and dinosaurs from a common ancestor. But um, I don't think we should call all of them feathers. I think we should only call them feathers when they're in like Manoraptorian uh, theropods. Um, so and and these. I, th- I say when they start to have feather-like structures, I think that they're, you know, like branching, something that, that is recognised in modern feathers. I think that's when we should start calling them feathers. Before that, I think we should call them mm. hair or something <coughs> like this, something more yes. nondescript. But, yeah, but very cool that we have these, like, several co- complex, weird integumentary things going on in calendodromias. I mean, these these little, like, like ba- broad base plate things and these long ribbon-like things, that's... They're not just they're not just covered in like a simple fuzz, and and is it like you know so so how many how many good small ornithischians do we have? Well, we've got good skin impressions. Well, we've got like a bunch of stegosaurs, one of which has got filaments, and now we've got Calendodromius and uh, Tianulong. It's like it seems that when we get specimens with exceptional preservation, we do get f- filamentous fuzzy things. Yeah, all all small ornithischians when we have the um. Have skin impressions seem to have these sort of fur or fuzz or something going on, right? It's a risky thing to to say, isn't it? But it's very tempting to think that this is. Well, there are exceptions, of course, because there are lots and lots of cetacosaurs around with scales and nothing yeah. else. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> however, I do think that there's just a pattern here, and I, I expect that it's just small, warm-blooded animals um, generally need a covering. And I bet that's what, if we think that early dinosaurs were warm-blooded, or, you know, I know this is a crazy sort of terminology yeah, just, that goes around this, but yeah. Just do that. Then quotes. they're going to have it. I think that's just, I think it's going to be as simple as that. Yep, maybe. So, and one other interesting thing about this story, we should say that there's there was a rival team to so go to Fuatatel had this paper in science and like any paper that ends up in a journal like science it was like rumbling on you know it's in in review for months and they went around to several different journals and and they had various journals saying no this is everybody everybody already knows ornithischians have fuzz this is irrelevant we don't need a paper on this so that they had that kind of stuff happening to them by the way i've seen some of these fossils there's you know there's hundreds and hundreds of skeletons of calendromius six skulls and hundreds of like they're all busted up but they're sort of bone beds of these things a rival team 
Alifanov and Saviliev, they just published a paper like within recent weeks where they've described the same stuff and they say that there's two ornithischians in the same deposit which they named Kalindapteryx Kulin- and Daurosaurus. They said that Kalindapteryx is what, what they call a Yaholosaurid ornithopod and Daurosaurus is supposedly Hypsilophodontid. So this is actually one of those cases where there's already names existing for Kalindodromius and now the procedure is, well, what do you actually do about this? Do you ignore these earlier published names because it wasn't done kind of by the book? You know, there's claims that they like took the material illegally and stuff. Or do you say, well, no, according to the letter of the the law, the ICZN, you've got to follow specifically, you know, the fact that these were published first. So that's not resolved yet. But um, obviously at the moment, people, everyone's using Kalindodromius and sort of forgetting about this other paper. But uh, that's that's a kind of an issue that will have to be sorted out in time. Um, and, okay, moving on. So that's enough. Oh, dinosaur stuff, I should say. Uh, at the time of speaking, it being Wednesday the 30th, tomorrow, must, so this will this will be out by the time the podcast is released, right? Mike Lee, Andrea Cow, Gareth Dyke and myself, we've got a paper in science on trends in theropod evolution. And we have combined a huge database of like theropod phylogeny and theropod occurrences and time and theropod body size using Bayesian methods, basically chucking all these, all these different sets of data together to get what we argue is the most kind of like complicated and biggest theropod data set so far. Basically shows that on the bird line within theropods, if you think only of the lineage leading to birds, then you've got a constant and continual decrease in size, a trend in size reduction that extends for over 50 million years. So theropods along this bird line getting smaller and smaller and smaller over time. And we're not the first people to uh, point this out or establish this, but we've um, basically used these new methods to uh, to try and uh, establish it. So that's out in science uh, tomorrow, and that'll I think that'll be all over the place in the news because media people love that sort of story. And also make the assault paper with Valentin Fisher and others. That was published recently. That's on a couple of Russian platypterogenic theosaurs, Perbushovisaurus and Simberskiosaurus, and that's covered on Tetzio. I don't need to talk about it here. Right. Away. Move away from fossils. <laughs> Drink. <sighs> Painted Mike Keezy drinking game. What was that drink for? Slash Richard Nicklin. I don't know. I thought whenever Darren makes a stupid noise, you got to drink. I don't know. <laughs> Take it. Make this drinking game up as you go along. Yeah. Do you have the rules in front of you now, John? No. Do you, exactly. So what do you know? <laughs> no, it's when Darren sings, when John hates a film, when John has never seen a film that he hates, when I don't know, when John takes a drink, take a drink, <laughs> swinging away at your martini there. Um, Tapirs. Have you heard the tapir news? Um, there's no new tapirs, right? Well, that actually, would be crazy. There's now, a, a large mammal being discovered now. Bear no with way. me here, because no I'm way. actually I'm actually going somewhere with this, right? Hmm. So, Tetsu, li, Tetsu podcast listeners might be aware of the fact that a new tapir was published earlier this year by Mario Coswell and colleagues called Tapirus cabamani. It's discovered in diverse locations in northern Amazonia. However, now, some of you will know, and this I'm telling the truth here, there really is some news here, um, there's three papers that are due to appear imminently on this tape here. 
There's two in Journal of Mammalogy, one of which contests the reality of Tapirus cabamani and says it probably doesn't exist. You probably just like made a mistake, and it's a local variant of Tapirus terrestris, the Brazilian tapir. Then there's a response to that. Those papers are going to appear in Journal of Mammalogy in sometime in August, I think. But um, there's also um, Mark van Roosmalen has got uh, an article out in the International Commission of Zoological Nomenclature Bulletin of the ICZN. Now, he published last year, 2013, he published the name Tapirus pygmaeus for a tapir that he calls the black dwarf tapir. If you're a long-time reader of Tetsu, or if you follow news on new mega mammals in general, you'll, you'll know that Van Roosmalen has been saying since about 2008 that he's got this new kind of pygmy tapir from from the amazon um which he says is known to various groups of local people tapirus pygmaeus and his article in the bulletin the iczn he says that his 2013 book which is called barefoot through the amazon he says that book establishes tapirus pygmaeus as an available name for what has later been named tapirus cabamani by mario coswell and colleagues so where this will go can't say at the moment because what happens with these things is is the original article stakes the claim and then other authors are supposed to chip in later and say yes i agree or or, or i disagree so um will tapirus pygmaeus become the new name for tapirus cabamani well watch this space <laughs> so there you go a new tapir or not or whatever well it is a new tapir according to these pa- well, this paper that says it isn't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I read the I read the response to the claim that it's not a new tapir, and it all comes down to this issue, which is very well known in biology, which and paleontology. We've covered it before. Is what is a species? And it's like, well, on the one you could say that no, it's not, because I want to. You remember we had that hilarious discussion about swans. Tetsuko. <laughs> 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 there's all the swans are the same there's just black ones in australia and the, the other ones are ones are just white they can all be it's like who decides what a species is and a good case can be made for saying that tapirus cabamani slash pygmaeus it's got like a bunch of anatomical novelties it doesn't group with the things that it's that it would do if it was subsumed into tapirus terrestris and it's got its own range and behavior blah 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 so therefore it's a species on the other hand people say no it just fits into this general pan it's just like a local variant it's like those things aren't mutually exclusive are they it's like what do we decide we want to do is it helpful to recognize it as a species or not so yeah well i think that a repeated discussion of this very problem has led me to the conclusion that species is almost as bad as genus and that basically it's all just a big joke (laughs) we shouldn't be expending so much effort on this a big joke yeah. well it's the problem the the concept of species is the proxy by which we measure measure diversity so i wouldn't say it's a big joke but i would say that it's nobody's yet decided that's what makes it a funny joke that it's yeah. really important but at the base of it it's nothing yeah yeah and it's and uh, it's completely inconsistent uh-huh, completely big joke on you biologists yeah you idiots yeah it's <laughs> it's like it's all but there's this, there's this. Have I, have I mentioned the frog's eye view versus the bird's eye view? Must have done before. I'm not sure. So th- there's just the idea that people think that counting species is a consistent thing across the board, but it's not because in birds, if you find like a one percent genetic difference or a 
say a one percent difference in morphology you know plumage one of them's got like a white eyebrow stripe and the other way doesn't other one doesn't then it's like well that's clearly a species but in frogs it's like you know you accept a huge amount of genetic variation and huge in genetics means i don't know four percent five six percent difference or something in genome uh, and but that one looks completely different. Oh, yeah, that's because it's just a local morph. It's just like adapted to the, the muddy place instead of the dry place. That that kind of thing. It's like people are not consistent at all in um, terms of what they regard as species across groups. It's all down to convention yeah. within a group of what, researchers, which is why it's ultimately a human endeavor. It's like not there isn't really a uh, uh, an objective kind of clear delineation of what species are. No, uh, but I think that's because we can't get at something like that. I don't think that it it's it's a trying to make into a unit something which is not a unit. Mm. Well, yeah, yeah. So, well, it's again, never really going to work. We must have covered this before, but the fact that people have got all kinds of different ideas as to what species is some of some of the well, all kinds of ideas as to some species are clades. Some of them are like segments of lineages. Some of them are hybrids between other species and many other variations thereof. So. Indeed. And if you work on something crazy like bacteria, the whole thing just seems like a complete, complete mess, right? Uh, just a total and utter mess. Anyway, we, we've spent like 50 minutes already, so we've got to, we've got to move on. Dikes. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Um, C for Q? Cash for questions! Cash for questions. Four big questions this week. We have many, many more questions, I should say this, for the listeners' benefit and the people that ask questions, but we're working through them. We're working through the backlog, so if your question doesn't appear this this time round, we, we will probably get to most of them next time, but we've got quite a big backlog. Not only did we have the thing where I didn't notice that there were cash for questions coming in, but also people have been asking a lot of cash for questions, so... <clears throat> going to do four this week, as many as we can next time. And yeah, we'll just keep trying to work through them. Yeah, we'll two-minute rule. We'll be richer than astronauts. Darren. Richer than astronauts. Two-minute rule. Keep it quick. Let's go. Go, right. go, go. Two-minute rule. Two-minute rule. Um, set my clock. <laughs> Pressure. Yeah. Okay, let's take the... Oh, yep. As usual, people are quite... Uh, the, their questions are quite long. Uh, I think we're going to have to set a limit on this, people, because, yes, we don't have time anymore. We've got to whip through. So right. how, what, do you think people should have to fit their question into a tweet? Oh, that's a good idea. That's a very good idea. Yeah. Because they should certainly get it into a cell of less than two lines width instead of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I want to read... I'd be wanting to read one or two sentences, not a paragraph. Yeah, well, I'm going to time you, see how long it takes, and then we'll make a decision. Go. Okay, so Brian Mahura? Uh, Mahura, yeah. Mahura, okay, that's a that's a drinking right there, isn't it? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> we should do this for real one day with actual alcohol instead of water or whatever you've got there. Um, <laughs> is there any value from the paleontological point of view in the research underway in evolutionary development, EVO-DEVO. I can understand how it can provide novel insights into current biology, but unless you, ha- unless you adhere to the old ontogeny recapitula- recapitulates phylogeny viewpoint, won't any findings say more about the present than the past? Granted, I would like to see a dinosaur chicken as much as the next guy, but <clears throat> still, it will still be a modified chicken, not a modified dinosaur. 
Are any advances in paleontology still just waiting for the more for more immaculately preserved fossils? Where have you gone? I'm trying to find a book. Have you finished? <laughs> have you finished? Yes. Because that's, that's okay. That took you one minute yeah. to read that question. Okay. Also, we're introducing his name, Malali's name. Sorry. Sorry to get your name wrong. Yeah. Do you want to say anything smart or not smart or say anything at all? Uh, Keep hmm. talking. I'm trying to find. Yeah. No. I don't. <laughs> you're meant to answer the questions, Darren. It's not. They're not asking me. I'm trying to find Marcello Sanchi Viagra's book. They're not going to be able to see it. Which, yeah, but so that I can check what he said. Because I don't know anything about Evo Devo. There's like a whole book written by Marcello Sanchi Viagra, uh, which is which is written um, Sanchi Viagra uh, on Evo Devo and the fossil record, and I cannot find it. I I've, I was part way through reading it because it's very good, but um, uh. Yeah, what was the question again? <laughs> it was <laughs> Is Evo useful for paleontology? Yeah. And the answer is yes. yes. Pretty much. There have been so there's this book and there have been several papers where people have basically provided good arguments that the more we understand about developmental embryology and the activation of genes and so on, it's that we make predictions about conditions that should have existed in the ancestry of animals which we can only test with the fossil record. Basically, people have merged the data from the fossil record with the hypotheses they come up with uh, based on developmental embryology. These, these two fields are now quite closely meshed, and this, this book uh, does a really good job of providing loads of examples. Things like the development of... Um, the abortion of development in snake limbs, the development of, of bat wings... Um, the development of the of bird fingers, all this kind of stuff, has all is is all very much a um, an Evo Devo um, thing. <laughs> he says with great precision and alacrity. <laughs> Where is this book? Damn it! I had to move all my books recently, uh-huh. and it's oh, there's just piles and piles and piles of books here. You're not going to have time to read it. Um, no, but just just to flick through it and just and just read some of the lines as if they're my own wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> damn it! It must be upstairs. Um, uh, yeah. So yeah. Oh, two minute rule. Uh, yeah. So the <laughs> I think we can sort of talk about the second part of this. You know, dinosaur chicken stuff. That's got some. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, like the the idea that <clears throat> uh, what is it? Phylogeny, no. Yeah, no, phylogeny. Autogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Um, like the notion that that was a rule is stupid and always was. But um, there's there's something going on there, and that's if you look at evolution over very large timescales, things tend to get more complicated by layering things on top of other things, and that you do get us to go from a simpler form to a more complex form. It does resemble, in some ways, what what um, the evolutionary pathway was. Um, so, but I think once you're up to the level of dinosaurs, the sort of level of, I mean, is a is a bird any more complex than a than a um, coelophysis? I would say no. It's not layered on top. It's changed. It's not. There's not just extra stuff going on, right? 
I think it's sort of, yeah, yeah. Mm. I wouldn't be very excited to see a. Um, well, no, it, I, I would be excited to see this a, a bird with the tail jeans and teeth tooth jeans turned back on. I think that would be pretty funny, but I don't think it would be um, like seeing a non-avian dinosaur. I don't really think that's because there's so many other changes as well, right? That. <clears throat> We've just got to think that most of those genetics have been wiped out. Yeah, um, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Yeah, it's it's like a really loose, woolly kind of approximate approximate generalization. But it turns out that it's there's. I think people do kind of think from it that, like, say, a human starts out looking fish-like and then becomes amphibian-like and then reptile-like before it becomes mammal-like and then it loses its tail and becomes human-like. And it's like, no, that's not how it works. It's, it's, it's far of a vaguer, looser, approximate thing than that. And the classic thing that people used to point to, Haeckel's, uh, like, pictures of little embryos, he kind of cheated. He did, like, you know, substantially augment the look of the... Uh, the, the is that better? Yeah. Yeah, he, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> he did. He did kind of augment the look of the embryos to make some of them look different or more alike than 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 they were. But um, the 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 chicken chicken saurus Jack Horner's chicken saurus project. Every time I hear it, I just think of the scene in Alien Resurrection where Ripley discovers Rip Ripley's version number eight, the one that looks like Ripley, and she finds Ripley number six, and it's on a bed going, "Kill me!" It's like. That's, I'm sorry, Jack Horner's chicken dinosaur is not going to be some sprightly, beautiful, glossy, plumaged little dromaeosaur. It's going to be some chicken. It's a mutant bird. A mutant bird with teeth. So it's going to have some crooked, sawn-off face with like jagged teeth to get out. And, it's, and they're honestly thinking, they seem to be thinking that it's going to have like a lizard tail, whereas... If it really is a feathered, long-tailed dinosaur, it's going to look like a... <laughs> it's going to look like a pheasant. <laughs> a chicken with a long tail is a pheasant. <laughs> so, <laughs> yay, well done. You, you made a pheasant with a broken beak. It's going to look awful. I think it's a stupid thing. And I also have grave concerns about the ethics of this thing. It's, it's, like, it's not okay to do that. To just, It's like, what if you were going to do... A person. Oh, I'm going to grow a baby with a tail. It's going to be like a little monkey. <laughs> It'll be hilarious, and we'll all we'll all look at it and go, "Wow, I want to learn lots about evolution." Now, people will be up in arms saying you've made a mutant baby with a tail. So, you know, rights for chickens, man. Come on, <laughs> like, you can't do that to a chicken. I'd so, agree if I was a vegetarian. But... I'm not vegetarian, but I still think that chickens have rights. <laughs> <laughs> they have rights to be eaten. It's not like they're making a. They're not playing with cells in a Petri dish. They're actually going to supposedly create... We're going to deliberately create a strain of mutant chickens that are done just for the purpose of education, and it's going to look awful. So I'm... That's, yeah, I don't talk to Jack Horner for lots of reasons, but I think, I think it's a terrible, terrible idea, and I really wish he'd give up on it. I think it's stupid. So that's my unbiased opinion as a chicken lover first, as <laughs> a paleontologist second. So, uh, I do. I do want to stop eating chicken. I really do. But I just—it's uh, too delicious. It's, too, it's terrible, terrible dilemma. <laughs> uh, yeah, if, bring bring on so the invention of some cheap meat substitute. Let's stop eating. I think we should stop eating animals. But then that's a whole other issue, isn't it? Um, it's it's happening. It's happening. 
vat meat. Soggy pork, yeah. they call it. Doesn't well, sound too appetising. Well, the fact that people have manufactured... Oh, two-minute rule. God, we're well over. No, uh, it's uninterrupted droning. It's not... You don't do the two <laughs> minutes... It's not two minutes per question. It, it was for me. Yes, <laughs> was... It's not meant to be, because then the people... The amount they give makes no difference. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> okay, right, so... This, yeah. <laughs> this is more than two minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what I... what I So, yeah, let's get this back on the rails. Evo Sorry. Devo. Have we got anything else sensible to say about Evo Devo? Well, not really, not without looking at what's said in this book, because I do have to confess that I, I'm not particularly interested in... I find genetics incredibly boring, mm. and... I, I, that's, I'm, you know, I'm being honest. I, I do, I, and that's not to say I don't appreciate its value and everything. And also, I know the concept of it is interesting, but just doesn't really, doesn't really do it for me. I just do not find genetic in the least bit, least bit interesting. And for that reason, Evo Diva often is pretty tedious stuff. You know, Sonic Hedgehog and Hox genes and all that stuff. It's like, yeah, okay, so that gene is responsible for the activation of that, which is responsible for that and that. So yeah, great, okay. So now we know how that works. Does that? Fill me with excitement and make me want to learn more about it? No. It's like, tell me about anatomy, behavior, ecology. It's a bit like geology. It's all very necessary, but I don't want anything to do with it. Mm. 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 And it makes you feel like a bad scientist. But, well, you know, we can't be interested in everything. Mm. And the the bad scientist thing is, remember that many geneticists have a sort of... Apologies to any geneticists who are listening, but many of them have a very... Um, highfalutin uh, what's, what's the word sort of superior the, uh, d- delusions of grandeur uh, to sort of the impression that what they do is more important and better than other science and the other science is kind of like ah that's just that's just stamp collecting that that, that kind of mentality you hear that you, I mean you know many times heard geneticists slag off people that work on morphology or the fossil records like, why do you even bother with that that's like two percent of the data whereas we've got all the data we don't need your fossils we don't need your animals we just need little test tubes with vial with with slop in them and that's that's real science so uh and that you know that's made some people quite angry it's not because it's not as if we've already worked out all the stuff to do with morphology and and uh, ecology and behavior it's like <laughs> there's a that stuff is badly understudied in many cases yes yes of course some of the morphology questions uh, do we've, we've as we've discussed before you know why do things why are things a certain way they are like why do tyrannosaurs have small limbs the way they do and often we find ourselves thinking uh, it could be some sort of genetic thing uh. in yeah. some ways i'd like to just know it without having to read about it but so that so then the answer would be well it's because the bhmp gene codes for the uh the the Adroxybenase form of of adiclinase on the developing limb bud, and it's like, and that's the, oh, and that's the answer. Oh, great, thanks. Yeah, but then at least we know to stop looking at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's because tell it's us because... which bits are dead to us. <laughs> Why do tyrannosaurs have small limbs? Because the genetics of limb development was aborted at an early growth, early stage in the well, embryo. Or why do they still have functional limbs when they seem yeah. to be too small to be useful? Or, you know, as I've argued, they're too small to be useful, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I feel like we haven't really uh, got... Um, Brian really hasn't got his money worth on the Evo Devo question. 
Do you want me to go and get that book? No, I I think we'll have to come back to it at some point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So apologies. Brian, you say? Yes. Yeah, Mahura? Mahura, yeah. Yeah, thank you for the question, and I'm sorry we did such a terrible job of answering it. But, well, (laughs) if you're a a listener, you know what to expect. (laughs) That's all I will say. Okay, uh, Mike Hansen. Oh, Mike, Mike, Mike. Such a long question. Mikey Mike. Um, Ratites and Paleonath appear to have been specifically uh, been a specifically Gondwanan radiation with species for, known from Africa, South America, Australia, New Zealand and Madagascar. Due to climate and ice cover, it makes sense that none of these have been found in Antarctica. So, oh man, I'm really slowing down. Are you timing this? Yep. I'm getting lost in the middle of this paragraph. Um though it might be an interesting place to search for ancient paleoness. India, to my knowledge, doesn't appear to have produced any paleoness remains. I'm wondering why this might be the case, or whether there have been any paleoness fossils discovered that are just very obscure. On a similar note, what, if anything, can be said of the Cainozoic? <laughs> Cenozoic? Cainozoic? Well, it used to be spelt Cainozoic. <laughs> Did it? In Old english Kayanozoic. You can spell it. You can spell it like that if you want, but it's yep. generally just... fauna of India prior to the collision with Eurasia. Right. Finished. Unbelievably. Uh... Look at look at look, look. See. Yeah, I got through that in a minute. A well, minute and so, one second. Um. And oh, there's a, there's a colliery to this. How how do you over in England pronounce Skeletor's name? There you go, Skeletor. Skeletor. Nobody says Skeletor. And Skeletor. That's, yeah, because that's what America. That's why Americans ask. So, do you say Skeletor? No. Why? Because we watched the cartoon. You idiot! <laughs> it didn't. We didn't just read it off a box of toys. We had the we had the cartoon come out before the toys were out. So, he man. <clears throat> I am Adam, Prince of Eternia. Let's just talk about He-Man now. Powers were revealed to me the day I held aloft my magic sword and said, By the power of Grayskull, I have the power! I became... No, Cringer became the mighty battle cat. I became He-Man, the most powerful man in the universe! Pong! (laughs) Only three others know our secrets. Our friends, Orko, is completely useless... I don't Comedy. Know. I forget what uh, he does. Matt Duncan or Man at Arms. Choo choo. And the Sorceress. Oh, goddamn. And uh, <laughs> together we defend Castle Grayskull from the evil forces of Skeletor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> what have I just done? Um, well, you've given me some good uh, intro material. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, so the, the paleonaths in India or Oh, yeah, or yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry. Right. Now, so the impo- he, he, he mentions the importance of Antarctica, which is like worth, uh, yeah, worth noting. There's no doubt that Antarctica would have been an important place in terms of the, the late Mesozoic and, and Cenozoic history of lots of bird lineages and, and loads of other animals as well. And it's probable that many lineages that are present in like um, the Gondwana continents, like uh, Australia, Australasia and South America, you're going to expect to find them present in, in Antarctica as well. So bring on global warming, yeah? Get rid of that pesky ice sheet. doesn't matter that sea levels are going to rise by 60 metres. I'm sure it'll be fine. Um, so Antarctica, we don't know what's going on there. India. Now, it's... 
been suggested that groups like oh no sorry back a little bit asia uh he mike referred to he said that there were paleonaths known from the southern continents i don't think he mentioned asia but there are lots and lots of asian ostriches so ostriches were like a normal thing in the Oligocene, Miocene, and Pliocene of Asia, as in all the way, well, actually all the way from Eastern Europe, there are some known from countries like Bulgaria, and then all the way through Central Asia, they're known from places like Kazakhstan and Afghanistan, and then there's lots in China. So there's loads of ostriches um, of the same genus as the extant ones, uh, Struthio, um, and in China at least, ostriches persisted into the Pleistocene and possibly into the Holocene. So as in like the last 10,000 years, there may have been ostriches hanging on till that, that late. So, so Asia had ostriches. So the question then is, did os- if, if Palinaths are a Gondwanan thing, did ostriches get out of Africa when this thing happened in the Miocene called the Gomphothea event or the Proboscidea event about 22 million years ago where Afro-Arabia collides with Asia and well Eurasia and African animals get into Asia and Euro- and Asian animals get into uh, Africa is it that they got they were ancestry African and got out got into Asia then and Europe or is it that they were actually um Indian and cuz Indian was like an island continent for much of the Cenozoic until it collided with uh, the rest of of, of uh, of Asia round about the end, I think the end of the Eocene, round about 36 million years ago, something like that. I uh, could be wrong there. But um, yeah, the idea has been suggested that, that ostriches were uh, an Indian thing. They got into the rest of Asia from India and then went, went like the northern route and got into Afro-Arabia after, the, 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 after this Miocene uh, event. Um, and both of those ideas have been suggested, and of course they may be completely wrong if paleonaths were using overwater dispersal early in their history, in which case like stem ostriches and stem paleonaths were flying across oceanic barriers anyway. So we, we, the problem is we don't really know enough of what's going on in the early history of these groups because we, um, we don't have enough fossils, so once you get out of like crown ostriches... Well, you've got some like fossil ostriches that are pretty similar to living ones, but you don't have like a whole raft of like proto-ostriches that are semi-flightless, poorly flighted or, or fully flighted. Then you've got these, you do have some fossils of ancient palaeonaths from the paleogene. They're generally grouped together as the lithornithids or lithorniforms. But exactly where they go in phylogeny is not entirely clear. And convention would have it that they are outside the clade that includes all the ratites and the tinamous. But some people have chucked them into big data sets and, f- and found them to nest somewhere within the crown. And given that some of them are flighted, they could support the idea. They could, they could basically add fossil support for the idea that you've got a flightability widespread in paleonaths with then several independent evolutions of flightlessness in the, in the ostrich lineage, in the rear lineage, in the cassowary emu lineage, and the kiwi lineage, and the elephant bird lineage, and the moa lineage, right? So, um, <clears throat> what a mess! So, what a, it, it is! It's a gargantuan mess. So, as usual, I can't, I can't <laughs> provide a nice, tidy answer to the question. But we don't know what's going on in, in, in Antarctica, and that's a big mess. There's this complex, unknown history of um, ostriches 
there's this um there's this uh it's it's all screwed up by the possibility that there's flighted stem members of different lineages like crossing the water by by flying and am i answering the question or not yes i think you uh, have i think you have because what what exactly was his specific contention Specifically Gondwana. Okay, so they're not specifically Gondwana. I don't know if there's ostriches in, in the Eurasia. Um, yeah, India. Dee, 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 dee. Oh, and he also asked about um, what's going on with uh, Cenozoic fauna of India prior to its collision with, with, with Eurasia. Yeah. Um, well, I think there's some like weird archaic placentals known from known from India that's supposed to be prior to its uh, collision. Plus, there's also the... Um, do any of the... I don't know. Let's come back to that. Let's come back to that. I think I've spoken for too long. Especially with that... Because that, that thing on He-Man, that was for you, Mike. So... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, many time cash for questioner. Christian Mulally asks... Antlers seem to, seem to be such a bizarre adaptation. Deer grow huge bone structures, which then die and fall off, and have to be regrown again next year. How did antlers evolve, and do they have any advantage over horns? Yikes. Yeah, I always like telling people how weird... Like, there's a lot of animals that, you know, we take for granted because they're pretty familiar to us culturally and because we see them regularly. But you think about them, they're actually really strange. And deer, nah, a group of animals that grow bones out of their, grow bones out of their head, mm. the bones that then end up as naked bone, they're not, you know, submerged in tissue, as is generally the case with bones. Then they shed those bones and then regrow them next year. It's like, what? You couldn't make this stuff up. That is just nuts. Given the fact that, you know, big deer, classic example is Megaloceros, so-called Irish elk, these are growing antlers that can be like, each antler can be like two meters long. They're growing those every year. So obviously deer have huge demands for calcium and phosphorus, and therefore the form of antlers and the health of deer is inherently they're in a sense constrained they have to live in places where they can like get lots of calcium in particular so there's evidence that that male deer in sexually dimorphic species which is the majority of deer they limit themselves to places where they've got where they're close to rich sources of calcium like willow the willow is a rich source of uh, um calcium um and but then if they not get they don't get enough they're their antlers, you know, become malformed, and and so therefore the antlers are a really accurate reflection of the 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 health of the deer. So, and and also, yeah, the fact that they're so desperate for calcium in particular means that they do crazy things in order to to get it. So, deer are abundant animals, particularly now, and because we've like killed off all their predators you know, here in England and parts of North America and so on. There are like millions of deer, and their populations are increasing some crazy amount something like 60% a year you know, in some places. So, so um, why aren't we up to our necks in antlers? As the answer is because deer are eating them. Deer go around and find antlers and eat them. They're not the only animals that do it. There are, of course, you know, rodents also eat antlers. And there are also moths whose larvae, uh, there are antler moths whose larvae eat, um, eat antlers. But God, just, just the whole thing is just absolutely nuts. Um, so... How how did antlers evolve in the first place? Well, people have come up with various 
uh, sort of models that are kind of, you know, theoretical models that are speculative um, to do with, so Valerius Geist, for example, has come up with a, with a model in, in, in his book, Deer of the World, I think it's called, where the, the most primitive deer, Muntjac, and this is also borne out by the pattern we see in the fossil record, the early members of these lineages, this is true for bovids as well, they start out with like big canine teeth and we think that, that they're fairly territorial animals, males and females both fight with, with canines, but um, they presumably evolve, like, again based on the anatomy of living animals like muntjac deer and chevrotins, which are a group of, another group of artiodactyls that, that um, have big canine teeth, they've got like special bony shields form of thickened skin on their bodies and also on the tops of their heads. And it's been hypothesized that that this like bony shield on top of the head became uh, somehow advantageous in not only like blocking um, sort of fighting teeth, but it also eventually proved advantageous to use that as a weapon as well. And if you're fighting for the purposes of like, you know, territory or sexual or social combat, it's been proposed, it's been argued, again, based on the anatomy of living animals, that it's helpful to have, like, jabby, pointy things that you can jab into the, the, the skin of your rival because that is actually super painful. <laughs> Whereas if you evolve, like, a big club, because a big club smacked across the side of your face or something isn't as painful and memorable as, like, a blade that cuts as much skin as possible. So it's proposed... This is like one of those general rules that people have come up with for the evolution of armament in animals, that jabby, pointy, sharp, tippy things are better for like making big skin wounds than our club-like weapons. So maybe there was selection to increase the like, pointiness of uh, these, these like, head domey structures. And then presumably what happened in, in deer, and again, this is borne out by the pattern of the fossil record, the, the, these cranial armaments these like top of the head things became more important than those big canines and the canines were eventually reduced and lost and they went on to um, uh, become evolve ever more elaborate head armaments and then that's, that, that, that then takes on like a kind of evolutionary escalation because, because they're used as weapons but they also they signal genetic quality and status and stuff so they're used as visual signals as well. So, uh, and the way the way antlers grow is is really weird. They're formed predominantly of, they're not formed of like a normal bone. So the, the, this obviously fits with the fact that they grow so quickly. They're predominantly formed of endochondral bone, which is like a really cartil cartilaginous form of bone. And then they've got like um, a, a kind of hard. So there's like a spongy cartilaginous core, and then there's a layer of a thicker non-cartilaginous bone called intramembranous intramembranous bone, which grows over the top of the endochondral layer so their whole anatomy is unlike that of of normal bones this helps explain why they grow so quickly um but as for models yeah models as to how they they i'm always wary in talking about things like that because it does it's very much a just so story mm. it's like i guess one of the really interesting things and i think in the question this is what advantage they have over horns is why do they lose them you why know, do they drop them? Yeah, why do they drop them? Why go to the, all this effort and then drop them? Yeah. Because it doesn't yeah. seem to be that much of a disadvantage. It would seem to me to be less of a disadvantage to carry, carry them around yeah. for the remainder of the year than drop them and have to regrow that enormous amount of bone. 
and yeah. all the and all the calcium and phosphorus, uh, you know, that's uh, that's re- it's quite difficult. It's a constraint. Mm. Yeah, and I, I've I've tried to read as m- I've always been interested in deer. I've tried to read as much as I can about the evolution and maintenance and variation of antlers, and that's something that I can't recall ever being explained. I wonder if it has been, if there's an advantage to dropping them. Because um, people, you know, there's, there's silly stuff that people have come up with over the years that pertains to specific kinds of deer, like the, the giant antlers of Megaloceros are so unwieldy that males are probably disadvantaged in cluttered terrain, for example. You know, it's not as easy for them to run through forests as it is for, for individuals that lack antlers. But whether that's, if that's not going to affect the whole of their history, uh, what about all the small-bodied deer? And what about, isn't it negated by the fact that, you know, if there's a, if there's a herd of deer of all kinds of, of all ages and, and genders, it's like, are you really going to tell me that the females are better and negotiating through the woods and stuff than the males? No, I don't think so. I think the males are probably a bit faster because they're bigger and, you know, got more muscle and stuff. So, Also, they're less likely to be picked off as... Because they look, yeah. they look less. Yeah, they're less obvious. They're less showy. So the the females, maybe you know, because no, no. What I mm. meant is that if you're a predator, probably the you're probably not going to go for the biggest, strongest male you can see, right? Right. Um, with those great big things on its head. Yeah. Uh, it just you know, yeah, okay, they might be slightly disadvantaged in rough terrain, but you know, that seems a bit weak to me. Um, yeah. And also, yeah, as you say, this this one works for when it gets crazy. But what about the ones that aren't so crazy? Yeah. It doesn't really seem to work for that. Yeah, I mean, it, it could. It seems to be one of those things that could just be sexual selection. I mean, it's sort of like it proves that you've got you've got what it takes to grow them every year. <laughs> oh, and they become. Oh, and also, yeah, you fade out of you know as you become less fit. That becomes obvious. Yeah, and they become more complex each time they regrow them. So, like, deer grow more tines, branching points, on their antlers the older they get. So, today, red, red deer here in, here in Europe, a ten-pointer is regarded as exceptionally magnificent virile and also quite rare, whereas, like, a six-pointer or a four-pointer is dirt common. And um, not as showy and not as not regarded as 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 healthy and stuff. But if that's the case, why can't they? It's not as if they. It's not as if they're limited to growing. Does it does it represent an investment of um, materials that they've like collected? Sort of, you know, stuff they've uh, ingested over the years, and it's only after you've got a certain reservoir of nutrients and minerals and stuff in your body, only then can you grow a ten-point antler, ten-point set of antlers, and that shows that you're. Do you see what I'm? I'm explaining this badly. Do you see what I'm trying to explain? I'm trying to say that the first step in this process is that if you grow antlers, why can't you just, given that they they grow and then they stop growing? Why can't you just grow, like, as soon as the animal starts growing antlers, why can't it just grow a a luxuriant giant pair with ten points to start with? Or is it that they can't do that? You can only do that once you have accrued a required, you know, a a significant amount of, like, you know, hormones and proteins and fat and stuff. And so, therefore, it is a direct investment 
It's a direct advertisement of how fit and buff you are and how much what what a spectacular mate you are. Yeah, it's, I yeah, I think it's probably got to do with something like that. Although of course you could argue that why not just grow them continuously and slowly, right? And therefore yeah. you get exactly the same effect. The oldest, strongest ones have the biggest, most impressive antlers. And that's generally the way it works with well, that, work, that happens in other things. I can't think of any examples at the moment because I'm a maroon. But just continuous growing things that just get bigger, right? Or maybe it's a race, and the it the selection is such that only within so you've got to okay, you've got to prove. Hey, you're a female deer. You're looking at a set of males. And which one of you boys? It's, it's the mating season. I'll see you again next mating season, but which one of you boys can prove to me that you can accrue enough proteins, fats, minerals, blah, 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 within the space of time? Go! See, I do think that does get back to my notion that it, it also, it, it's a strong indicator when you start to decline. Because say you're a, like a well-established male and you've got the 10 pointers, but you have a couple of years where you're not that great. Um, then that's going to be obvious that's going to be obvious because your antlers aren't going to be as good, right? Mm. Whereas, you know, with the way they do it, you have to be on top of your game every year. Yeah, yeah. Um, although, does that really help? Because surely it doesn't matter how old this, the the male deer is if it got to that stage. Just because it's old and decrepit now, still got good genes. Meh. <laughs> 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 Meh. <laughs> 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 So we don't know. We don't know. And does anybody know? Yeah. Calling all deer experts, deer biologists. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe it just is really expensive to keep them year-round, but I just I just can't believe that. But why would it be once they're... It's not like... They're kind of heavy, aren't they? Well, yeah, but not that heavy. They're, surprised, they're actually they're surprisingly light for their size. Yeah. I'll still hurt your neck a bit. Mm. Well, yeah, but 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 then you know if we're comparing them to other animals with stupid display structures, they're they're less heavy than tusks and you know horns and yeah, or 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 about the same. They're either less heavy or about the same because 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 of their spongy internal texture. I mean, even like I've picked up Megaloceros antlers mm. um, from the the Irish peat bogs, and they they don't like. I'm not joking. Like an antler that's like you know a meter and a half long, and it weighs. At a guess, I would say, you know, 20 kilos or no, le- less, probably less than 20 kilos, like 10, 10 to 15 kilos per handler, which, okay, you might not want to walk around with 30 kilos on your head, but yeah. it's not, it's not a big deal for an animal that weighs half a ton. Um, yeah. Back of, yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, so we just don't know. We don't know. This is, well, this is another thing where to, to give a proper, answer you need to go away and comb through the literature and become a huge expert on antlers and their anatomy and physiology and uh maybe mm, not yeah haven't done that sorry it's a <laughs> no. but, but a, a, a fascinating subject and and yeah dear i've i've written about dear quite a few times on pet zoo and often come back to this the fact that just think about this, a group of animals that grows giant bony things off its head and then sheds them and then eats them. And then, of course, there's all these cool stories about places where, where they can't get the calcium they want because they're stranded on islands or something. So they take to radical behavior like um, eating animals, you know, eating uh, seabird chicks and eating rabbits and, and carcasses and stuff because 
a lot of hoofed mammals eat um you know bones anyway because they they generally seem to be quite calcium hungry but um but deer especially yeah yeah, yeah. it's funny isn't it you wonder how they know it's like mm, i'm really really hungry for bone it's, I think it's, it'll, be a, it'll be the same as cravings in, in people. Mm. It's just like, I really need some tomatoes or eggs or sausages or something, because people do get cravings that represent what their body actually needs. Yeah, it's funny, um, isn't it? Although, strawberry ice cream and so on. That yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Most of my cravings are for things I don't really don't need. Well, the, cra- the, the cravings that, that human females report when they're, when they're pregnant is like, I really need some gherkins. Yeah. Why could you... Like, there's as much nutritional value in gherkins as there is in cucumber and vinegar. Here, cu- cucumber and vinegar. No, they tend not to like that so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my cravings are nearly always for fat and salt. And I don't think I lack fat and salt in my diet. Huh. Yeah. I think that's just sort of a leftover thing, isn't it? That everyone generally craves fat and salt because they're, they're rare. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't know if we I crave it. for them being rare. Well, yeah, yeah. Crave is probably the wrong word. I'm just greedy. Yeah. yeah. But it's what you want when you're hungry, right? Mm, I don't know. I'm not sure. When I'm hungry, no, I, I don't know. I, don't know. I deliberately don't eat fatty and food. And I did, don't get me wrong. I don't eat it so well. But um, no, I don't know. See, I'm hungry right now. What am I thinking of? Ravioli. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think we've taken that as far as we could. <laughs> Let's move on to Stevie Moore que- Stevie Moore's question, which is the final cash for question. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, one sec, one sec. Uh, one sec. Uh, okay, and go. Okay, all oh. oh, right. Oh, is it possible or likely that flying birds could, will, have become as large as Ashdarkard pterosaurs, based on the fact that we know Ashdarkards certainly flew, and presumably decent, decently at huge sizes? Could you please speculate on possible scenarios for flighted avian megafauna, including anatomical structure, lifestyle, and niches, and even behavior? Also, any recommendations on further reading? And 20... Could you see that? 20... That's about 30 seconds. Well done, 30 seconds. Well, you know pterosaurs. What do you want to say about this? Um... There aren't any, but we don't know of any birds, flighted birds as big as um, Ashdarkid pterosaurs. In fact, not even close, right? Not even close. The largest birds seem to weigh in at around, I think the mass estimates are about 70 kilos. Am I correct on that? On a good day, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so if you're looking at Ashdarkid pterosaurs, probably weighing more like certainly over 200 of the big ones. Um, yeah, there's, they don't get as big. And a couple of things suggest themselves structurally. Um uh, but I don't know this, but these are just possible things. Um, birds are relying on feathers. Feathers might have a an upper limit where they're not they're not particularly effective, and I think the biggest feathers are getting up around a meter long. I wonder if you try and make them much longer, they just start to not behave correctly anymore. Um, and also, bird launch becomes a big problem. Um, so they birds launch essentially by jumping with their hind legs. Um, which means that they've got to have powerful hind legs, obviously, and powerful forelimbs for flying. So it's actually less efficient than what pterosaurs were doing, which was jumping on all, all fours. They got the full benefit of their flight muscles to launch them in the air. Um, so 
pterosaurs have an advantage in launch. They're the two structural things that suggest themselves to me. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I would have covered exactly the same thing. So the current maximum estimated wingspan for the biggest birds. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we would have said that Argentavis, this Argentinian pteratorn, was the biggest bird. We've published... It's not known from anything approaching a complete skeleton. In fact, from its limbs, I believe there's only a humerus known. But based by comparing that to better-known pteratorns, it's variously estimated to have a wingspan. But anywhere between normally six to seven metres is the estimate they normally give, mm. which obviously includes the full skeletal span plus, plus these inferred big feathers as well. But there's another group of... Um, giant, soaring, slim-winged, high-aspect seabirds, the pelagornithids, also called odontopterygiforms or bony-toothed birds or pseudo-toothed birds or false-toothed birds. Where they go in the phylogeny is a big, interesting question. But there's a new pelagornis specimen. Is it pelagornis or was it osteodontornis? But whatever, one of the bigger of the pelagornithids published just a couple of weeks ago, and they reckon wingspan for that is the same ballpark like possibly six seven meters and some of the articles i read about it were saying that i forget who was involved in this was it gerald my uh, gerald meyer has done a lot of work on pelagornithids it might have been habib but um osteodontornis 2014 uh, they were basically saying in this article that um, that these giant pelagornithids possibly were bigger than um, the, than than Argentavis. But you know, yeah, yeah. But what? But whatever. You know, if these birds are maxing out at a wingspan of six to seven meters, well, yeah, the biggest uh, pterosaurs have the biggest as darkets have inferred wingspans and reasonably inferred wingspans of like ten to eleven meters. So pterosaurs are still and plus, as John said. Pterosaurs are definitely the biggest pterosaurs are much heavier. So, um, uh, yeah. And so, so what, what is it about birds that means they can't do what pterosaurs did? And I, I, was, I would have said exactly the same thing as you. The fact that, that birds, flying birds, birds are fundamentally constrained when it comes to, like, um, their takeoff mechanics in that they're requiring on hind limb power. They're, they're, they're depending on hind limb power, whereas we've got a lot of good reasons for thinking that pterosaurs are using a four-limb push-off, and therefore they can, they can get into the, the air with a, a much larger body mass. Um, I suppose, in a sense, you could say that um, the four-limb takeoff is, in quotes, better than the hind limb takeoff, certainly at larger body size. And then, um, yeah, the feather, the feather thing. Now, there's... Um, sorry, what was the name of our questioner again Stevie. Uh, Stevie Stevie said um, any recommendations on further reading if you google Habib H-A-B-I-B Witten plus one Habib Witten plus one you will find hey let's try this Habib Witten plus one so our good friends and colleagues Mike Habib and Mark Witten published a paper in 2010 called on the size and flight diversity of giant pterosaurs, the use of birds as pterosaur analogues, and comments on pterosaur flightlessness. And check that out, because they have some stuff in there, which is basically why... Uh, I'm going from memory here, because it's been a while since I read the paper. It's a long paper. Check it out. <laughs> but, but I'm sure there's some stuff in there, or certainly there's some links to stuff, some references to stuff, that say why birds probably cannot uh, 
um, function as flying animals at the same size as pterosaurs because the like of the 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 bending stress of feathers and the the um, obviously if you've got a single membranous wing supported by a spar, which is what pterosaurs have got, then you don't have to worry about um, like uh, slots in your in your in your wing and uh, having to compensate for that. Whereas yeah, whereas twist. birds, yeah, all that sort of stuff. So. Oh, I'm trying to find like a nice sexy quote in the paper. I can't I can't see one, but but yeah, it's a it's a combination. I think it's a combination of unusual anatomical condi- conditions. Basically, pterosaurs evolved a set of characters, which meant they evolved them at small size. And when they were evolving them at small size, they weren't planning ahead. They weren't thinking that one day we'll evolve into ten meter, two hundred and fifty kilo monsters. But they were features that were enabled them to evolved giant size and made them better at evolving giant size than birds and that's not to say that birds haven't done well because obviously there are big birds as well birds have done well but they haven't evolved these giant sizes of pterosaurs so in a sense pterosaurs are better in quotes so remember that when you hear people talk about i really hate the fact that you know whenever this subject comes up someone talks about oh the atmosphere was different back then the air was thicker no it wasn't no it wasn't the animals were different biology is the I think personally that biology is always the explanation as to the unusual anatomical features of Mesozoic animals, and it's not because the world was different. The world was different, but it wasn't different enough to explain the evolution of sauropods, tyrannosaurs, giant pterosaurs. Indeed, I would say that nearly always the variation on Earth today encompasses uh, is bigger than the difference between the Earth now and then. If you see what I mean, you know, the difference between the tropics and temperate zones now is yeah so yeah it was more subtropical but so what you're just expanding the tropics somewhat it does not really um mm. it's not really a particularly not very different um so there's there's another part of this question so let's speculate how big how could birds get to be as big as pterosaurs how could they get around these um <clears throat> these anatomical constraints well they <laughs> The, the work that I, I, I should say the the the, the bony tooth bird that I mentioned was published by Dan Sepka and colleagues. It's called Pelagornis sandersi. It was in Proceedings National Academy of Sciences or PNAS or PNAS, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and um, they're saying they're saying that this animal had um, uh, about a seven meter wingspan. And in the article I'm looking at here, and I'm looking at a National Geographic article, they're saying that it like is on it's it rivals the wingspan of Argentavis. So they're saying they're about they're about similar. But isn't there work showing? And again, I'm thinking of Mike Habib's stuff, stuff that I've heard in talks. There's stuff showing that because we know that muscles are constrained in terms of the size to power ratio. You can't like there's there's like a there's like a constraint on. Her, Muscles can only be can only provide so much power at a given size, and then once they get once they get above that that given size, they can become too heavy or they require too much power, too much sorry, too much like you know en- energetic input to to work. So, if a bird is going to be a flying bird, it's got to be constrained somewhat by its mass and also by the energy required to power the muscles. And I think there's work showing that these biggest birds are more or less at the limit in terms of always dangerous saying these things because this is like what people said about giant pterosaurs you know way back no no pterosaur could ever get bigger than seven meters and then quetzalcoatlus comes along that sort of thing um but i think it's been shown that these pterosaurs are kind of these big birds are at the limit of of a launching leap so 
birds probably and a, a thing like a pelagornithid with its because it's incredibly high aspect slender long pointed albatross like wings based on the behavior of albatrosses and also based on the way their wings are put together what's been inferred about their flight behavior they almost certainly were using they were running and leaping but they were they had to have assistance from winds and where they were where they were doing their takeoff right you know they'd be they'd be running around on like islands where there are sea winds or you know high places or whatever the evolution of argentavis this giant and the other giant pterodactyls has also been lift been linked to um the presence of of strong winds that would have assisted their launches so so with that in mind what if there was some new climatic regime where there were super strong super rapid powerful winds that could enable even bigger birds to take off and that's not impossible because we know from uh, atmospheric dynamics and such we know that there are places where winds are becoming or have been in the past faster and more predictable the question is could they ever be predictable enough and fast enough to um, basically be advantageous to the evolution of giant flyers and that's a big problem because no they probably aren't they aren't long-lasting enough to, uh, to, 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 to enable the evolution of giant flies of that sort. You know, because the, the albatross evolution, albatrosses within the past several decades, the uh, wandering albatrosses in the southern uh, Atlantic, they've, they're able to get, well, not the southern Atlantic, in the southern hemisphere, they're able to grow bigger, faster, because of like, increased uh, circumpolar winds. And so they're, 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 they're like foraging over bigger distances and getting more food, growing much quicker. It's like, great, it's a boom time for albatrosses. But the winds that they're relying on are constantly moving southwards. And it's thought that within another 20 years, those winds won't coincide with an, a current area of, of latitude that's quite like a rich, you know, rich pickings for albatrosses. So, um, yeah, it's interesting to note here that the biggest pterosaurs weren't doing anything like this as darkids weren't doing this sort of thing you know pteranodon and that sort of uh more albatross analogous type animals they they are smaller they're not as big as um as big as as darkids so there's sort of a there might be a a constraint there as well mm. yeah and, and in terms you should, of foraging yeah, and and you're um, thinking that that yeah because they're leading an albatross or frigate bird like lifestyle that maybe they are, maybe they've co-evolved with like a sort of oceanic circulation, yeah. reliable winds and stuff that are helping their takeoff maybe, but but well, yeah, the they're that, just they're soaring. In fact, is what I'm yes. thinking. Yes. Yeah. Um, because it seems like Ashdarkids were intermittent flappers. They don't seem to be specialised soarers. Mm. Um. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I wonder whether that's the case. Um, even if, the, but even if we have some sort of special climate regime, we've still got some other problems. Um, the feathers. Do we think they we can just scale them up? I think that, like, so far as I know, all flight feathers of all birds are basically built the same. They've done some stuff. Birds that have got like uh, a lot of melanin in the the feathers, which you know black tips the feathers, that sort of stuff. They've strengthened the feather vein, but and there's also a lot of variation in terms of the cross-sectional shape of the um, the, the quill, the the main spar of the feather. 
is it plausible that you could get, however, a bunch of evolutionary modifications that that could provide super strong, super stiff feathers? Like, could they do something stupid, like put lots of, I don't know, microscopic interlocking, uh, I don't know, keratin or metal or something into the... Because <laughs> there are animals that sequester metals of various kinds into... Um, like there's lots of arthropods do this with jaw, jaws, and there are uh, uh, ker- uh, keratin in like turtle beaks and the beaks of other animals, including some birds, involves uh, metallic particles. So um, it would, I, I think, I, I assume it would be pretty radical, and would in, and would uh, involve some major shift in how things are grown, but. Um, I wonder whether just a, a shimmying of anatomy would do it. So, say you just shorten the end flight feathers. You just keep them at whatever is your optimal sort of length, less than a metre, say. And just make your fingers go out further. Hmm. So, you just end up with a stubbier outer wing. Or, you know, you, you keep the outer wing the same by lengthening the hand inside it to stiffen the whole thing up. It's interesting because we don't actually know the flight what flight feathers were on the ends of these big birds. No. They haven't no, discovered were... any, have they? So oh, we don't no, no, actually no. know. Or do we? Well, no, I was going to say that's not quite right. One of the... Um, uh, there's a, a Californian... Uh, I think it's Osteodontornis, but there's one that's got feather impressions preserved around the skeleton. Oh. And... I think I, I'm going by this. This you know, this famous. It's never been well described, but it's this. Uh, have you seen this sequence of diagrams done by Mark Hallett, where he shows the the original thing as it looked, and then like a reconstructed skeleton, and then a muscular reconstruction, and then a life restoration. Maybe you haven't, but um, I haven't seen that. No. But no, I'm pretty sure that um, that diagram shows. Um, the uh, the fact that there's some feather impressions preserved with one of these things, and that shows you that they definitely had like super long, super slim sort of albatross style feathers, where there wouldn't have been what's the right way of saying it? You know, there would have been really pointed tips. They wouldn't have had like slotted, fingered feathers like uh, like vultures. Yeah. Um, so I, I do believe that's known, in which case you can say some... some uh, I'm just going to disappear over here for a moment. In which case you, you could say some pretty sensible things about the um, uh, the shape of the wing. <laughs> Sorry, just trying to get... Uh, this. Uh, this. I'm not going to mention who it's by, but this famous book on f- the evolution of birds. Uh, <laughs> my my favourite author. What were we saying? Um, so I was I was saying whether oh, yeah, this could be stiffened up by just lengthening the hand and forgetting the feathers, like just keeping them shorter for structural reasons. Yeah, well, I'm not even but, sure that's an advantage. But, well, because aren't there lots of birds that do that anyway, and they're not doing crazy stuff with in terms of yes. But we're trying to get at the at the um, how do you make how do you scale up a bird to a quetzalcoatlus? Um, yeah, sort of well. I was thinking of this set of illustrations, but it's completely useless because it doesn't show what I'm talking about. You ever seen this before? No. That's by by Mark Hallett, and there's the life restoration he did. Okay, that's good. Um, Yeah, that's by... 
That's of Osteodontornis, one of these biggest uh, big I was going to say, where is that? Because I haven't seen it, and now I understand why I don't know where it is. The Origin and Evolution of Birds by You Know Who. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good old buddy. I um, did look at that once in a bookshop, and I thought it's a very nice looking book. It had lots of, seemed to have lots of good illustrations nice drawings in it and stuff, but yeah, I just couldn't buy it, bring myself to buy it. Well, it doesn't have lots of nice illustrations in it. They're copied from all other sources, and they're like murky, sort of black and white, kind of pretty crappily reproduced. Uh, but, but but it's the only place that puts them all together, and therefore it's the only thing that does anything like what it does. Does that make any sense? Mm. Yes. <laughs> there is a big lack, lack of books on the fossil record of birds. Fiducias are like the only ones, which is my, which is why my chapter in the Complete Dinosaur Two is so important. Because, yeah. um, but um, oh, so the, I think you know a, a fundamental redesign of the avian bow plan would be the only way around this. So, like the the, the, the birds that have switched to like quadrupedal launch or something. <laughs> I can see how that might happen. So, you know, if, you, if you're taking off from the water, you're running along, you're doing sort of wing-slapping type thing. So I can see how you might get turn that into a sort of a quad-launch type arrangement. Mm. Water launch. You'd still have to get running, which is tricky. And it's probably, it gets harder the bigger you get, so I don't think that's going to solve it. I think you'd have to... you could adapt that to ground launching. So you get yeah. good at doing that on the water, and then you start doing it on the land, and then you... Then you get bigger and bigger and bigger, and then and then you're done. And, and plus, you have to have lots of innovations going at the same time, like because feathers are highly prone to erosion. If feathers keep slapping against the ground, they fray and they break. So yeah, you'd have to have you, some. You'd have to make sure you were slapping your wrist rather than the whole. So so you need right. So the, and you have some you, sort of wrist pad, or you you know yeah. you re-evolve some fingers or something. That's right. So so the so the way you could get a big bird evolving to an asdarkid is. It evolves in really, really super windy conditions, so it's like destined to happen due to climate change. And you evolve like super strong uh, metal uh, wing finger uh, um, feathers, and you take to fall in launching. So basically, that, that whole combination of things is somewhat improbable. And uh, of course, and you know what's going to happen next week? They're going to discover, you know, this giant flighted bird, twelve million wingspan. Yeah. Titan, Titan. No, avian. no, it just looks ordinary. You know, giant swan or something. <laughs> yeah. That's all. Yes. Yeah. So. Um. Okay. I think that's good. I think we should stop because we've been going for ages. Okay. I thought we should wrap it up by ending with. So Patrick Murphy sent us a question that is one of these ones that got lost in the ether somehow, okay. and it basically said, "What are your thoughts on um, the the new Planet of the Apes movie? Which was it called? Rise of the Planet of the Apes." Mm-hmm. So he's asking us to to what do we think about this movie? But it's easy to answer because. I haven't seen it. And have you seen it? I don't remember. It's well, it's brand new. It's out in the cinema right now. So oh, okay, then no. I think you would remember There's if you'd been seen it. A few it. new Planet of the Apes. I don't know. They all seem to run together for me. I didn't. Okay. Well, I really okay. want to see it, but having seen Godzilla earlier this year and um, Transformers: Age of Extinction, which I saw a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> it's like a tri- trip to the cinema costs about fifty pounds. Obviously, I go with. You know, the kids or someone else. So like, you can't, I just can't. There's like five films out at the moment that I really want to see, and I just, I just can't, can't justify spending that money on them. So Transformers: Age of Extinction. I saw that a couple of weeks ago. What a 
pile of Michael Bay. <laughs> really? Who would have thought it? <laughs> but but Not I a love great film. It, it's, no, it's awesome. It's just like <laughs> um, so just non-stop roly-poly robot dinosaur fights and the odd woman in high heeled shoes and then another explosion and it's like just crazy. But do you know there's dinosaurs in it though? It starts with dinosaurs and here we go segging back to what we were talking about earlier on. It starts with with a cetacosaur with a filamentous integument mm. with the tail fuzz which of course is one of the cetacosaurs of course being one of the dinosaurs that was present at the, the time of the KPG event because the film starts at the end of the Cretaceous with uh, spoilers! Mm. The film starts with like the end Cretaceous extinction event being caused by invading robot things, and um, and you see these little dinosaurs, and then the Dinobots in the movie. They're only in like the last ten minutes. I thought like Grimlock and such were going to be a ma- major characters, but there's yeah. Mm. I can't think I had anything else important. I, I cannot watch another Transformers film. I mean, they're <laughs> just too stupid. Too stupid. I can't watch any more of them. They're, they're, oh, God. No. <laughs> I Even I if could... it has dinosaurs in I'll watch the clips of the dinosaurs on YouTube or something when they come out. There's no way I'm watching it. So you a whole one of those, another one of those films. There's like a two-headed, like, sort of dragon pterosaur monster. There's like a giant triceratops with teeth. There's, with like spiky teeth. There's like a giant spinosaur. And there's the Grimlocky thing. And there's a bit at the end where they, there's like a giant sort of alien craft that um, sort of uses magnets to take everything from Hong Kong up into the sky. And all these dinosaurs are going, Rah! sort of getting pulled up into the air and stuff. It's, uh, it was hilarious. So I saw my brother-in-law and with my 12-year-old son and we had a great time. So, And also on movies, right, Comic-Con, Comic-Con what is it san francisco whatever comic cons just happened and this year i've noticed i think it's become more of like a mainstream thing than previous ones because they are like big companies are increasingly using things like comic con to launch like movie ideas so legendary and whoever else is involved they announced godzilla 2 at comic con and the big deal is godzilla 2 is going to have king Ghidorah. And Mothra and, I don't know, I can't remember the other one, Gigan or something, but it's going to have like another one of the famous Godzilla monsters. And everyone's going, oh my god, it's going to be like the best film ever, we'll, we'll die before we heart stack. But, Are there um, going to be any women in it this time? Probably not. Or any characters that I care about. Which, oh, <laughs> there might Planet of the Apes. Apparently that's a, that's a pretty criminal male-to-female ratio, which is kind of, given that it's humans interacting with non-human hominids we know for a fact that like if you were to if you were to send okay if there really was an army of intelligent non-human apes and you were to send a human ambassador you should send a woman because in general chimpanzees and gorillas and orangutans to a greater or less degree they generally get on better they they prefer the company of women they don't like feel they have to just flex their muscles and beat them up which they do with men but no they didn't think of that when they did uh no, because people don't watch things with women in them. Women don't like watching women. Men don't like watching women. Women no are one very un- likes watching women. They are very unpopular as a generalisation. Yeah. So, uh, so 
But, but then, so getting back to Godzilla 2, there's no, probably no women in it apart from maybe one that cries and one that dies. There's a got thick neck army. Thick neck army. But then they said, oh, by the way, we're not really going to have all those monsters in it. We're just going to have like one of them or something, and the others are going to be for other films. So, oh, thanks a lot. And then Skull Island, the prequel to King Kong. You're going to love this, a King Kong prequel. Great. That, that's been announced as well. And finally, finally, the thing that there's, there's gradual momentum gathering up about this. A lot of sort of interest, a lot of murmurings. I've been telling, this to me is like the Sultan's Elephant. I found out about this and I was blown away and I've been telling everyone about it. And if you don't know what the Sultan's Elephant is, check it out. It's amazing. Superman Lives. Have you heard anything about this? I, Superman? I'm not really into Superman. Why? We, spoke about, we spoke about Man of Steel a couple of times on the podcast. And maybe you, about other you have maybe yeah 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 <laughs> okay so get this you won't believe this so did you know that in the mid 1990s the comics the Superman comics ran a story whereby Superman dies and they did it because the idea was that the the sales are declining and it was like some cheap gimmick to basically you know get it in this the, the, I think I remember that yeah. yeah. And as a result, this particular because Superman has this like battle of like many episodes where he's fighting some ultimate villain called Armageddon or something, I can't remember what it's called. And um, so the, the one where Superman actually dies was like the best-selling comic of all time. You know, millions and millions of copies were sold. But then, of course, it being a comic, that wasn't really the end of Superman because then they had a whole story, a bunch of storylines where like five or six or seven new Superman appear, and one of them's like a cyborg Superman, one of them's a robot Superman, one of them's like it's called Superboy, one of them is just like Superman but wears a black costume. You know, this kind of stuff, right? Mm. So that's the whole like mythos of Superman in the mid nineteen nineties. In nineteen ninety seven or thereabouts, Warner Brothers put a lot of money into the making of a new Superman movie that was going to be called Superman Lives, and it was going to be directed by Tim Burton of Edward Scissorhands and um, uh, Beetlejuice and a load of other zany, crazy films. And Batman, of course. Ah, uh, well, you come to that in a moment. And Superman was going to be played by who else but Nicolas Cage. <laughs> so Nicolas Cage, and this is a fact. This isn't. I didn't dream this because because um, there's loads of like stills of Nicolas Cage in the in the Superman costume, and it had like crazy zany visuals. They were going to have like all these weird suits, like metallic suits and suits with like glowing in it and stuff. And and there's you know scenes of Nicolas Cage and photos of Nicolas Cage in the Superman costume. So I love the idea of failed film projects that you never hear about until someone digs it out. It was going to be written by Kevin Smith. It's going to be written by Kevin Smith, directed by Tim Burton, starring Nicolas Cage. Kevin Smith, I know him best as Silent Bob from um, the movie Mole Rats and a couple of other things, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back and stuff. He was going to write it. <laughs> and, um, but it didn't... Like, so it's just a totally different take for Superman. And it didn't work out because Warner Brothers basically lost a lot of money. Some people say because of a movie called Sphere, which I've seen. I remember seeing it at the cinema. It stars Dustin Hoffman and Sharon Stone and um, um, uh, someone else really famous. Yeah, it's almost an entirely forgettable film, though, isn't it? It is, and it was, and it flopped. Samuel yeah. Jackson, Samuel Jackson, it's the other guy in it, and uh, yeah, it was terrible. And it, they lost loads of money as a result. And that's partly why some people say that's partly why Superman lives died so this has all come out now because a person whose name i can't remember and he's the most important person in this in a sense 
some guy is making a documentary now called The Death of Superman Lives, which is all about this failed film project and with the interviews, all the people involved and everything. I think it's a Kickstarter-funded project. Death of Superman Lives. Uh, what's his name? John... Sh- ah, stupid Google. John Schnepp. He's currently... Well, he's got over 2,000... Oh, time's up. Oh, and he made the money. So he's done it. So, um, or was that just... Yeah, the, the funded. The project was successfully funded on March 10th, 2013. What the hell? Oh, a bit out of date here, then. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay. So, so far as I know... Lucky we didn't put this in News of the World and News section. Yeah. So far as I know, this, this project is going to be like a feature-length documentary. I mean... I don't know about you, you probably don't care, but I think this is brilliant. I can't wait to see this. But a whole documentary about a failed movie, and a movie that just sounds off-the-wall crazy. But, but as you said, it's like, if, that, if this project were to be devised today, and there would be inklings, you know, rumours about it online, the nerd rage would be such that people would have pitchforks and everything, and just tear it down Nicolas Cage as Superman no but on the other hand Tim Burton as you say Tim Burton made the Batman movies of the early 90s which were huge absolutely huge and Michael Keaton as Batman yeah that seemed stupid at the time but no it wasn't it was a really good choice and it worked really well so who's to say you know Nicolas Cage as Superman I think this making films by consensus is um, terrible. I mean, it's just bad. You don't want to do. You don't want to make things that way. Getting a whole bunch of people's input and then doing it. No, it's a mess. <laughs> and they miss the interesting things that the crazy things that make things really good. So you you end up with a bunch of mediocre nonsense. I think when you try and uh, you you bend to the nerd rage about stuff. Um. Also. Uh, i got to say, often people, the people who are loudest are the people that are most into things, and they get really, really into the details of stuff, right? So, like, the canon becomes really, really heavy and difficult to move and difficult to make stories, good stories in, because there's so much stuff you have to pay attention to. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think it's... If you're going to make something like this, you should make it in secret. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, like I say, I've noticed a lot more people talking about this project. Um, and, like, I saw a couple of things on Facebook today where people are sort of saying, oh, I've just heard about this. And it's 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 kind of become big after, after Comic-Con. I mean, you know, I'm not like a... I don't really follow the comic book world and stuff. But... Um, yeah, it's like yeah. How are we feeling about the whole superheroes film thing? I don't know. I I I got. I've got to say, I'm pretty bored with them. Mm. I've never been super into like superhero comics, but I enjoyed yeah. the first few films. And but I, I they're just diminishing returns for me. I don't. I haven't seen one for ages that I actually liked. All right. Well, so you're not looking after. You're not looking forward to Age of Ultron then, or uh, uh, Batman versus Superman. Uh, because I really am. <laughs> no, I love that stuff. Um, I am looking forward to the Voltron one, yeah. 
Ultron. Not Ultron. Voltron. Oh, damn it. No, there's meant to be a Voltron. Term. Voltron wasn't really big here, was he? We've done this before, yeah. John, three yeah. times about yeah. plugging into cats' asses. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> no, the next, the next Avengers movie is called The Age of Avengers, Age of Ultron. And it's about this like cyborg guy who has an, who has an army of like thousands of robots. And it looks pretty kick-ass. And they've also started to release stills and you know promo images from Batman versus Superman which is looking bigger and bigger the the scope of this the scope of this film because who knows what the hell it's going to be about Batman versus Superman is it going to be about some big fight between Batman and Superman well well how come it's got Wonder Woman in it so they've just released this image of Wonder Woman cuz you know for years people have been trying to put together a Wonder Woman movie and they I just don't think they've done it because they haven't found a person that looks that looks right as Wonder Woman. She has the the physique for it, but also has the kind of like, you know, what Wonder Woman ain't nobody's lady. Yeah. She's like she's like meant to be a sort of part of this whole ro- warrior race of like I think they're called the Amazons. So they people like them. They, um, they should have got Xena to do it. Well, someone like that. So it's someone that's got to have like a level of gravitas and sort of independence about them, not some. Not like Megan Fox. All due respect to Megan Fox, but because she was she was pictured in the Wonder Woman costume for a while. But they've got someone now, and it's like they've also gone for like a slightly subdued kind of costume. It's not it's not like spangly, glittery, like bright chrome or red and stuff. They've they've gone for something that's got more of kind of a leather sort of real world look, and it just looks great. And they've also released them. Um, now again, you don't know Man of Steel that well, but there's a bit in in the movie Man of Steel where. Um, General Zod is uh, sends out this message to Earth saying, you know, one of my people is among you. He will look like you. And, you know, for, for reasons unknown, he has decided to hide. And I'm basically trying to call him out. Well, they sh- in this little clip where they, they, they play that recording. I guess he's watching it from his secret lair. Guess he's watching it. Guess he's watching General Zod talking about Superman. Batman. <laughs> Batman is, Batman's like, oh, what, what? Why didn't I? Why didn't I hear about this before? Um, so, <laughs> so that's that's all they've released so far. It's like you can find that online if you know if you know where to go. Batman spying on a recording that is about Superman. So. We've also got the Lego Movie on constantly because the children and I've there's Batman stars in that and Batman in the Lego Movie. <laughs> it's very funny. That was a bad pun. <laughs> <laughs> All right, enough, enough. enough stop, enough. Darren. Make him stop. Make him stop. I'd like to know how what the um, superhero fan versus Tetsu fan overlap is. Mm. Yeah, let us know. We're hoping at this stage it's fairly large <laughs> that it exists. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. Now then. Yes. Okay. Right. So let's 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 finish this up. Yeah. Okay, I want to say something about cash. Shut up. I want to say something about cash for questions. So, the new rules with cash for questions. Uh, um, when you donate, you you you. So the way you do it is you donate on tetsu.com. Press the donate button. Put your cash for question in the note field when you're donating through PayPal because then it all comes through to me at, in the same email and I don't have to go matching things up it makes it much easier so that's the way you do it and also how do we keep, keep people down what's the limit 
What do you mean, keep them down? What's keep, the, to keep the, the word limit down. Ooh. Well, I suppose you just ask politely to keep it less than 200 words. 200 or words is a lot. Isn't less it? than, yeah, but 100 is quite an art. <laughs> to... No, 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 no. You're thinking characters. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, think more tweet length than paragraph. That's what I'd say, right? So, single sentence, maybe two. That'd be good. I mean, yeah, we don't want to be really difficult about this, right? I mean, if it, correct. If yes. it, yeah, if to get a po- across the subtlety of your question requires a bit longer than that, that's fine. But um, yes, and uh, what else? Who are you? Where can they find you on the internet? Well, thank you. In case someone's people, just, yeah. just listening to podcasts at random, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, thank you very much to the people that have sent. Cash for questions. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, that's bad, isn't it? Because, yeah, yeah, so we appreciate that. And thank you to the people that have donated and keep us in in central heating and wrapped up in warm clothes, because it's really appreciated. Um, So my name's Darren Nash. I tweet at... Stop, they must be. On this all depends. Only a fully trained Jedi Knight with a Force's ally will conquer Vader and his Emperor if you enter training now. If you choose the quick and easy path as Vader did... You will become an agent of evil. Patience. And sacrifice Hannah Leia. If you wonder what they fight for, yes. If you choose to face Vader, you'll do it alone. I cannot interfere. I understand. R2, fire up the converters. Page 104. <laughs> Luke, don't give it. Oh, yeah. At Tetsu. <laughs> there's, there's currently a. Haha, <laughs> look. Never run out of quotes for your handy script to The Empire Strikes Back. Um. <laughs> <laughs> There's a Tetramontology Facebook page, which is crucially important that you visit and like this. Uh, our friends John Turmel and Alberta Claw run a uh, Tetzu-themed comic called Tetzu Time, which is available online at... Oh, time.tetzu.com. Yeah. And our buddy Ethan Kozak of Black Mud Puppy fame. Visit him on Patreon. Um... Ethan runs the Tetsu comic, which is that. Uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, John's having a coughing fit. He just had to mute himself. Uh, the Tetsu comic is at. Comic.tetsu.com. <laughs> yep. Uh, we should also just say thanks again to Mike the Fish for transcribing certain episodes. Has he sent any more in? No, because I never put them up because I'm oh, a yeah. disorganized. Bucket. Right. And a couple of other things. Um, you should definitely buy some, some Tetsu merchandise. We have two red bubble shops. There's a Tetsu red bubble shop where you can buy a fetching Tetsu podcast T-shirt. Thank you to the people who have bought them and appeared on TV and all kinds of stuff in music videos and everything. And that's at redbubble blah, 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 forward slash Tetsu podcast. No, Tetrapodcats. Exactly. And there's also a, uh, there's another Tetsu, another one, forward slash Tetsu, I don't know. That's where you can get my uh, dinosaur and monitor lizard t-shirts and a couple of new primate ones. Thank you to people who bought them. And thank you to people who have like posed gratuitously in front of magnificent animals and such while wearing those. If you're interested in any of the stuff that we talk about or tweet about, uh, or whatever, the stuff on the podcast, then, oh, for crying out loud, where's all my stuff gone? I don't know. It seems to be behind you. 
No, that's, that's other stuff. Um, then, you know, do consider buying our recent books, All Yesterdays, which is about science and speculation in paleontology, and The Cryptozoological in Volume 1, which is about uh, speculative uh, approach to cryptozoology, and Volume 2 will be out any day soon, imminently. And also plugs for some of our other books, because, you know, couple of years go by people forget about things you can still get now dead cheap some of the books i've written in the past like the great dinosaur discoveries which uh yeah just google great dinosaur discoveries find it on amazon for like a quid or something or a dollar and uh, there you go you're laughing and um yeah yeah i'm not wearing hockey pads your turn um yeah you can find me at johnconway.co with links to my facebooks and my twitters uh, I think that's pretty much it. <laughs> so Darren gets to say six minutes of crap, and John just goes, I think I'm on Twitter, <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's it. Right. We done? Do you like my li- yeah, do you like my little taunt-taunt, Audrey? <laughs> <That's> very good. <laughs> and that's the end of that.